Has the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry now become a joke? We break down the three wins, the Bombers' dominance over the Red Sox, yet another key Yankees hitter landing on the IL, J-Hap's vesting option, why we can't stand A-Rod in the booth, and looking ahead to a four-game set against the Rays. 1998 Yankees World Series champion Homer Bush also joins the show. All that and more, a loaded pinstripe pod next from the New York Post. Welcome to the Pinstripe Pod, our New York Yankees podcast from the New York Post. I'm your host, Chris Sheeran, alongside my co-host, four-time Yankees World Series champion, Jeff Nelson. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chris Sheeran. Yes. And Nelly is at NYNelly43. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're using Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review and uh, write in a nice review as well. We appreciate your support and feedback. Former Yankee Homer Bush joins us later in the show. But first, we get to my co-host, Jeff Nelson. And I'm just going to throw some numbers at you. 9-0 and at home to start the season. Nine straight wins against the Red Sox. 14 of their last 15 20 of their last 25 against Boston. Jeff, they're 66 and 26 at home since the start of last season, and they're 24 0 and 3 in their last 27 home series. I know the World Series is the prize that everybody looks for in Yankee land, but those numbers, especially against the Red Sox and this Chris Farley air quote rivalry this season, the Yankees are off to a ridiculous start, especially with the injuries. It is ridiculous. And again, you know, you have guys that are stepping up and, you know, it's it's something that when you're playing the Paul Tuckett Red Sox and you're you're kicking the crap out of them every every week, I mean, because they're not the Boston Red Sox. They're, they're Paul Tuckett. This is a triple-A team. They're a very bad team. I don't know if they're tanking it or doing whatever they can do to try to get the number one pick uh, next year. But besides Nathan Evaldi, I've never heard of one pitcher that's coming out of the bullpen or even starting for them. You know, it's just, uh, I for me, it's sad to see because it was a great rivalry. And now I don't think it's anything. Well, I think the Yankees have a new rival, at least just for this year and maybe a couple of years to come with the Tampa Bay Rays. We saw that down in Tampa with a little bad blood with them, some chirping out of each dugout. It's nice to see. And we talked about that in some of our last podcasts for me. And I know you all back in the late nineties, you know, had those bench clearers. I, I remember the Orioles won very vividly, by the way, and Daryl Strawberry and Graham Lloyd and that whole uh, melee that happened with Baltimore and Benitez after he plunked Tino. But it's nice to see a little animosity, Jeff, between two clubs and hopefully we get that uh, uh, more of it with the Yankees and the Rays and maybe a little bit with the Yankees and the Astros when they finally meet if they do meet in the playoffs this year yeah I agree and uh, I mean with the new rules you're not supposed to be fighting so because of all the COVID-19 well, the Astros are uh, having some issues with that this year <laughs> uh, I know I mean they, they uh it, it's it I like it I mean, I mean you don't see too much of it you know everybody gets suspended for long lengths of time now so you know sometimes guys stay away from that stuff but you know Maybe in 2021 that that'll be rebuilt again, and and maybe when the Yankees do play the Astros during the regular season, they won't forget. Uh, kind of like everybody else shouldn't forget. But you're right with the Rays and the Yankees. That's becoming a nice rivalry, and it's almost taken the place of the Red Sox Yankees. I know that'll always be there, and the fans and while well, the fan 
fans because they're not there, but the media will still get excited about it, but maybe a little bit more so with the Rays. The Rays are a very good team. They win in a bunch of different ways. They're going to be right on the heels of the Yankees, no matter how well the Yankees are playing. Uh, and, you know, you got to hand it to the Yankees. They're beating up on teams they should beat, and the Red Sox are a team that everybody should beat up on, and they're doing it. And, you know, they got one more game for it. Yankee fans take a long look at what the Red Sox are going through in 2020, and I know it's a shortened season, and it's it's not normal by any means, but look at what the Red Sox have become. And the Yankees, through their quote-unquote rebuild, they were always in it, Jeff. They were always they always had an opportunity. Whether they missed the playoffs or not, they were always in the hunt. The Red Sox are nowhere near the hunt. So Yankee fans should be extremely happy that every season this organization tries to put a team on the field that's going to compete and try to make the playoffs every season. Well, there's no way you can have a rebuild in New York. There is, I mean, I don't know how the Mets, maybe the Mets are doing. I don't think the Mets would even have a rebuild. But a Yankee Stadium at the Yankees, there's no way. Mr. Strymer, when he was around, still around, there was no way you're rebuilding. I don't care what t- kind of team. He'll put. He'll do something to try to compete. Now, Boston has passionate fans. I mean, they love the Red Sox. It's just that they're rebuilding and retooling or whatever you want to call it. And sad to see because I've, I haven't witnessed this in in many years in New York there's no way you could get away with oh you know what we, we, you know we have some young players that that just doesn't work there and uh, it'll never work there yeah and and you know what you know what else you can't get away with in New York that ESPN broadcast <laughs> Wow. You you texted me and you were telling me how Twitter was on fire for Alex and it wasn't on fire in a good way, Nelly. He was a very good baseball player. You know, obviously, I wish I wish the steroid thing would have never happened because I don't think he was a guy that needed it to be a good athlete. You were his teammate, too. Yeah, I I saw him in Seattle and, you know, I don't know how far it goes back or when he used. I mean, I'm not sure. And you know, for him to sue baseball, sue the Yankees and all this other stuff. And I, I think some of the broadcast is forced. I think some of his comparisons, what they do last week or a couple of weeks ago, it was judged with Michael Jordan and, and uh, Tiger, Wood. Tiger Woods. And, and, uh, and David off said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, exactly. I mean, I mean, what the heck? You, you know, it's, uh, you know, the comparisons and some of this, some of the stuff, because th- the thing it is, is it surprises me. It was such a smart baseball player when he played. I mean, he could pick up on what, what you know, pitchers tendencies as far as where they tipping pitches or doing something he knew how to hit you know he looked in certain zones and then in the broadcast it just doesn't come out that way and so you know sometimes it's tough to listen to jack curry yes thinks alex has probably one of the highest baseball iqs uh, that he's ever come across in a clubhouse. So you saying that about when he was a player is no shock to me. But what is shocking is sometimes what he says, like last night I had no idea where he was going, Nelly, with the shift in baseball. The Red Sox had a shift on Aaron Hicks. And this is just the first part of a two-part question I have for you because we were texting about this last night. It drives me absolutely insane. But this is the first part. He likened the excitement of the NBA to the shift in baseball. <laughs> <laughs> and I had I had no idea where he was going. And I don't think Matt Vaskurgeon had any idea where he was going because there were crickets after he brought it up. 
See, I mean, it, some of the stuff that he said, I, I, don't, I don't know where he gets it. You know, and, and he was. He was a really, really smart baseball player. I mean, he was, uh, you know, everybody relied on him. You, you know, they went up to him with all, he had a plethora of lo- knowledge to go into a game. But as far as him saying it on TV, I don't know where he gets his stuff. I, I have no idea. I actually, you know, I turned it down and turned the music on. And, and I, you know, I watched it and I, I just couldn't listen to some of it. Uh, my second part to that shift is this is something that you have to try to help me understand because for the life of me, uh, being a baseball lifer, I don't understand this. Aaron Hicks with the overshift to the right side. Brazier's in for the Red Sox out of the bullpen. You would think he wants to pitch into the shift. Now, I know sometimes guys, they they don't want to be a spray hitter and they don't want to go everywhere and they'll try to pull an outside pitch, Jeff, and they'll pop it up. So I understand why you're going outside. But if I'm a hitter and I hear analysts, not just in this area, but all over the country say, oh, he meant to foul that off. Oh, that was a foul on purpose. Oh, really? Well, if he could foul the ball off on purpose, why can't he take an outside pitch and beat the infield, which is completely on the right-hand side of the field. I'm telling you, when Hicks was up last night, Jeff, Devers, who was playing third, he was scraping second base. I mean, it's it's insanity to me that a hitter can't take an outside pitch and just punch it into left. Are we that home run happy and that, like, launch angle happy that we're not going to take what they give us and we're, we're gonna, just going to try to hit into the shift? I'm like a robot. My wires are crossed. It just doesn't doesn't compute. I, I don't get it. It's not baseball. I'll never get it. You know, I don't understand. Uh, you know, Hicks is not a home run hitter. Uh, he should be hitting for average and getting on base and, you, you know, be a table setter instead of, oh, I want to try to go deep. And the thing of it is, is that if you're a pitcher, you're not going to pitch him inside because that's where he likes the ball or that's what he wants to do. He wants to pull the ball all the time. And, and he's going to try to pull the outside ball part of the play. I mean, that ball on the outside plate as well. He doesn't want to go the other way. With LeMahieu now on the shelf for we don't know how long yet because we don't know the extent of the injury and, and the Yankees are waiting on a second opinion on his thumb sprain but with him out Hicks is your leadoff hitter you have to change your approach if you're the leadoff hitter you can't be geeking for the for the right field porch every time you're at the plate especially if the Yankees are healthy behind them with Judge and Stanton you got to be setting the table well Hicks Hicks's approach should always be spraying the ball and getting on base you know hitting in a gap extra base hits your you know your home runs will come you don't have to be swinging for the fences all the time take that out you know the opposite field you know take that base hit maybe get a double out of it I mean my you know I, I just don't get it I don't I, I you know just like watching the pitchers when they start pulling cards out of their hats or out of their back pocket and then all of a sudden they're flashing signs to the cat I don't know what that is maybe that's just uh you know with a guy on second they're going to go different signs or whatever but you know if, if they they have to pull out a card saying okay when I face this guy I got to do that you know it's all robotic you, you know these pitchers are becoming robotic and you know we talked about what was it last week or, or when Britain came out and says oh it's overuse or or you know we're getting exposed in the playoffs and I, I said I said you know what you're wrong I mean it's not about getting overexposed it's figuring out a different way to get guys out instead of reading your card all the time saying oh I can only go here and I can go here every time the hitters aren't that dumb that they're going to sit there and say well I'm going to look for that pitch you know it's just uh it's just mind-boggling 
yeah. You know, home run hitters are home run hitters. You look, look, I just don't get it. You know, I, I played against Wade Box, played with him. He was one of the toughest two strike guys ever. You know, you never felt comfortable. Usually when you get two strikes on guys, you always were comfortable saying, okay, I'm going to get him. And I don't know how many pitches it's going to take, but I'm going to get him. And with Wade Box, it wasn't because you talk about fouling pitches off. If they were close, he would. He would just foul them off and foul them off. And he did it purposely. And until he got a pitch that he could drive somewhere. And, and he usually did. That's why he was always such a great average hitter. He was an on-base guy. He could hit 20, 30 home runs if he wanted. I mean, he probably won any home run hitting contest. But as far as an average guy, we have to talk about baseball. And, and you know, it, it's uh, it, it's exciting because you do have some good, exciting young players. And even with the Yankees, uh, it's just tough to see them giving – they're they're given a part of the field and they don't take advantage of it. Yeah, it, it's amazing. And, and it'll always just sit in my brain and rattle around and not make any sense. And uh, here's something uh, that we have to talk about too, and that's Aaron Judge. He, I, I had the opportunity to ask him a couple questions yesterday. Uh, the Yankees made him available before their Sunday game against the Red Sox. He says he's 100%. And, and he says he could play right now. But the Yankees put him on the injured list to protect him because they don't want a mild calf strain to turn into a grade one or a grade, grade two. And we've saw, Jeff, these... <laughs> grade one and grade two calf strains the past couple of seasons with the Yankees. And we see how long that these injuries last. They could linger throughout the entire season with the shortened season, with everything else going on in the world today with coronavirus and everything else. The Yankees just said, look, go on the injury list. We'd rather you miss a handful of games now rather than multiple games later. He says he's going to be ready to come off. He's starting baseball activities today, Monday. Uh, and he said he should be ready to come off for the Subway Series this weekend. But is it a little disconcerting to you that you have a player that could play and he's not? Uh, it is very disconcerting. You know, I understand I understand what the Yankees are, are you know, trying to do. They just see Stanton go down. Uh, who knows when he's going to come back? Uh, you want Judge in that lineup, and maybe they felt that, you know, he's not going to be able to play 60 games. Maybe he plays 45, and we get him for the whole playoffs and get a healthy Aaron Judge in the playoffs. And, you know, they're going to take their time. You know, a lot of the injuries that he's had wasn't kind of like this. I mean, you know, he dives for a ball, he gets hit by a pitch, it's on a swing, you know, it's not any kind of calf strain or hamstring or anything like that. And I know they're concerned and I know they want to try to keep him healthy. You have to tell Aaron Judge, say, hey, you're not, you can't be throwing the training staff under the bus saying you're 100%. It almost looks like they were premature and putting him on the IL. And now he's not going to be able to come back until Saturday. Uh, You just say, hey, this is why we did it. If you're asked that question, just say, you know what, I'll be ready to go when I come off instead of saying, oh, I'm ready to go right now. Because, you know, that's not, that's not, that's not what the media wants to hear. It's not what the fans want to hear. They want to see this guy in the lineup every day. And, you know, you look at the standings and the Rays are two games out the Orioles are the surprising Orioles are 12 and 9 I mean my goodness will they make the playoffs who knows but it's only you know you have a 60 game season you you only have what about six weeks left of the season you never know what can happen and to lose a player like Aaron Judge and just assuming that hey we're going to be in the playoffs or we're going to get the number one seed I think it's wrong to assume that and especially I'm not going to say that Orioles are going to take over the Yankees but the Rays are a pretty good team well it was precautionary Uh, the Yankees doctors uh uh, 
trainers, Aaron Boone, uh, they all conferred and they all thought it would be to err on the side of caution and put him on the IL. Uh, judge isn't disappointed with the organization. Somebody asked him that. And they also asked him about the, the turf in Tampa because he brought it up uh, and how he always gets a little tight after playing on that Tampa turf. He says he's going to start wearing tennis shoes on defense and then he'll switch to spikes when he hits. So he's going to make that change when he goes down to Tampa. And, you know, everybody's saying, well, Tampa plays there all the time. Listen, it affects different people in different ways. Right. And, and right. Judge Judge went out and he seeked the advice of other major league players that have had the same issues that he has had. So he's being proactive about it. This I played guy, in the kingdom, uh, you know, yeah. for a long time. And, and Ken Griffey Jr. <laughs> and Jay Buhner, you know, they were on the turf nonstop and they used tennis shoes. They they didn't they didn't wear metal spikes. Um, Jay Jay Buhner used to hit hit with tennis shoes on or hit with uh, like a turf shoe. Now Griffey would every once in a while use like some plastic spikes or some uh, or some metal spikes every once in a while uh he would he would do that but he's right you know i mean and now that was the old turf that wasn't this grass turf that they had so you're right it's, it affects everyone differently and it may be because the aaron judge is what six eight that it's going to affect him a little bit more than others more than like a low low gravity guy maybe somebody that's like six foot but you know i can understand what the yankees are doing because they want to keep this guy healthy and any kind of like little tweak there they they i don't want to say get paranoid but it's like oh we gotta we gotta protect ourselves and uh, we gotta to protect him and they'll throw him on the IL just so I guess maybe for the benefit of him uh, not all of a sudden going 100% because that's what he plays he plays at 100% and sometimes reckless but that's just the way Aaron Judge is and, and you think, applaud that yes absolutely and I think the the, the case that DJ LeMahieu got hurt after him I think maybe if LeMahieu was on the shelf before Judge we might still see Judge in there and uh, not on the IL but that's the fallacy of the predetermined outcome our buddy Michael K says that all the time so I figured I'd get that in there. But LeMahieu, we're still waiting on word on him with his thumb strain, Nelly. He was batting 411 when he went down on that awkward swing on that slider by Avaldi outside. But you got to think, you know, with him down for an, an undetermined amount of time, uh, Judge, hopefully he'll be back Saturday. Stanton, we still don't have an update on him. Those are three big pieces of the Yankee lineup. But LeMahieu, as Judge called him on Sunday, he said, he's the catalyst. He's the domino that get, he's the first domino that gets everything rolling. And I tend to agree with Judge. They need LeMahieu back this season and definitely in the playoffs. Well, hopefully we get some good news. Hopefully the Yankees get good news about his thumb. I know he's getting a second opinion and hopefully there's no ligament damage in there and that he's going to have to have surgery or something that puts him out. And I don't ever want to see that because you're right. And Judge is right. He, he's, a, he's a catalyst in that lineup. He's your leadoff hitter. Here's a perfect example of a, a guy that hits for average and he'll spray the ball everywhere and still has power. How about that? Yeah. You know, you never see that. I mean, how about taking some, you know, if I'm a guy in that Yankee lineup, I'm watching this guy every single move and how he hits. If you're Aaron Hicks, you should be watching LeMahieu and say, hey, this guy sprays the ball everywhere and still can hit 20 plus bombs and still hit over 300 all the time. I mean, I, I don't get it, but whatever. But yeah, I think uh, I, they definitely need some good news for LeMahieu, uh, you know, because when you go into the playoffs, you this is a weird playoff system this year that the two out of three, 
you wind up playing some low low level team and all of a sudden they throw two good starters at you and you don't have your main main guys in that lineup it's going to be you know you're holding your breath if the Yankees can get through that well we're going to have that situation Tuesday Wednesday and Thursday when the Yankees take on the Rays uh, in the Bronx the the trop has been an absolute house of horrors for the Yankees but they've played the Yankees or the Yankees have played the Rays better at home and the Yankees are playing insane at home right now as we tape this as we mentioned nine and oh to start the season in the Bronx they wrap up that series against the Red Sox tonight the wraparound weekend series and then start that three-game series against the Rays and you have three main pieces of your lineup that are not going to be in the lineup so it's going to be interesting to see how the Yankees do in this three-game series against the Rays now oh no doubt it is going to be interesting and but you know the Rays have a chip on their shoulder and I think we saw that when the Yankees were in Tampa and they're like hey you know everybody's forgetting the Tampa Rays and you've seen some players and now you can hear them chirp a little bit more because there's no fans in the stands and they're still going to go to New York and they're going to have a chip on their shoulder and they want to try to get into first place and they want to say hey you know everybody's saying New York New York New York don't forget about Tampa and I think the rivalry is going to be heated and I think it's going to stay that way Tampa's not going anywhere I don't think they're going anywhere for a few years now they took three of four against the Yankees and then they swept the Red Sox so that Yankee series propelled them to score a heck of a lot of runs against the Red Sox too they they beat Boston 8-7-8-2-9-5 and 17-8 the Yankees pretty much springboarded the Rays to prominence in the 2020 season so it's going to be interesting to see if the Yankees have that counter punch one last thing before we welcome in our guest Homer Bush we have to bring this up Jay Happ and his vesting options, uh, Jeff. He needs 10 starts. He's at three. He was skipped the last time in the rotation. If he does hit the magic number of 10, his option would kick in for $17 million next year. Now, this was asked in the postgame press conference of the Yankees' representative, team representative, Zach Britton. He refused to answer it because he thought it was a better question for Jay and Jay's agent. But my thing for Hap, and, and I'm pretty sure Jay agrees with this sentiment, pitch better and you won't get skipped in the rotation. Well, you he pitched really well yesterday and you know in the Sunday night game and you know he had 75 pitches and I thought he could have gone a little bit more I know Aaron Boone loves to go into that bullpen it was a four to one game but he was getting a lot of easy outs and and just seems to me that the Red Sox have given up you know every time they take the field you just see it on their face they're obviously not having fun uh there aren't any smiles and it's it's uh it's tough to see but Hap was throwing well I mean he had a good breaking ball his fastball location was really good he pitched up in his own got some swing and misses up in the zone and it didn't seem like he was struggling at all to get outs and and that's what I think that's the eye test when you're throwing a lot of pitches and you're struggling to get outs okay I can understand five and two-thirds but when you're not struggling to get outs and you're basically breezing through the game and you have 75 pitches I might want to try to go hitter by hitter instead of oh okay he got a guy on base or or you know he didn't he got that last out I'm going to go to that bullpen right away he pitched well yesterday hopefully you can start seeing a little pattern from him because in, in some ways they're going to need him I mean you have you have Cole and you have Tanaka you have Paxton I mean who else is I mean you need a start you need a starter and, and hopefully Hap is that guy that's going to be able to contribute and and put together some back-to-back good outings. Yeah, and Aaron Boone was asked in the pregame uh, press conference uh, by Joel Sherman if he was a starter, and Aaron Boone just kind of 
smiled and said, Jay Happ is a starting pitcher for the New York Yankees. So we'll see how it moves forward. But as you said, Nelly, he pitched well enough last night to turn some things around and hopefully he can get back out there and, and piggyback off of that start. Because from what we saw in spring training and, and in summer camp, spring training 2.0, it looked like Happ had all of his hard work in the offseason was starting to pay off. So we'll see if he could carry that over into his next start. All right, coming up on the Pinstripe Pod next, Homer Bush, everybody. The cavalcade of Nelly's former teammates continues. It rolls on as we welcome in Homer Bush, uh, 1998 Yankees World Series champion. You could follow Homer on Twitter. It's at Bush Homer. He's the author of Hitting Low in the Zone, batted 380 in 45 games back in 1998. Uh, and then he was traded with Graham Lloyd and David Wells to the Blue Jays for Roger Clemens. Uh, Homer, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. First, I got I got to start with a little bit of uh, comedy here because I, I have to be completely honest. I mean, we worked together on some Staten Island Yankee games at the Yes Network, but I had to refresh my memory on your numbers and 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 your steals and everything else like that. So I I went to Google you, and <laughs> you know how it usually comes up with pictures of the person you Google. Well, the first fifteen or sixteen pictures are Homer Simpson disappearing into a bush before it gets to Homer Bush. So I figured, you know, maybe we could call Google and work on that, Homer, and, and get you as the number one trending picture. You know what? Someone told me about that a couple weeks ago, and uh, I, I thought I was going to check into it and just totally forgot. So that goes to show you how much I really care about what Google <laughs> is uh, representing me. <laughs> at, least it's not in, at, least it's, at least it's not some porn that pops up. And That's what I thought that you were is. going to say in Homer <laughs> the Simpsons. Nelly coming in hot already. Oh man. Uh Homer, Homer, I've asked every former teammate we've had on of Nelly's how it was playing with him and how he was as a teammate. So let's get your take don't on lie. Jeff Nelson. Don't, don't sugarcoat anything. No, I'm not straight up. Like, so uh Nelly was to me, uh, he was very quiet. Like Nelly wasn't like a like a like a ball buster or anything. Uh for the Yankees, the one thing that was really cool was that we had such an experienced roster. All the little nonsense that went on with the younger team, we didn't have that old Ricky Hazen and all that stuff. It was li literally about going out, getting the job done, and winning the championship. So, I mean, he was he was really cool. I will say this: the dude is a gamer. I always say, man, with his size, through from that arm angle, with that aggressiveness and just anger on the mound, should be illegal. They're trying to outlaw all this other stuff in baseball. <laughs> but when he was on the mound totally different person clubhouse i mean he's cool as all get out what did you think coming over i mean you came up in 97 and and played for a little bit and then all of a sudden 98 and we had that unbelievable year 114 wins and 125 total and and you were a part of that and especially in the playoffs in the world series what did you think i mean you just mentioned all the veteran guys and uh you know the the, the media level the small locker rooms and you know to be a close-knit team i've asked you we, we had charlie hayes and cecil fielder we've had a lot of guys on and they had some pretty interesting things to say about about those teams dude i tell you what when i first was traded over i was thinking to myself there's no way i'm going to break this mlb lineup now, i didn't know if my career was going to take off in the, at the major league level or they was going to just shove me back down in the minor league level 
so then everything happened with Soho breaking his hand. And I'm getting an opportunity to play at the major league level for about six weeks, and then I do well. So then we get into the season, and now, like I say, we're just we're just grinding. We're just getting the job done. But when the season was over and I saw the amount of appearances that I had, the contracts and the years, I was like, man, I'm never going to get on the field if things stay the same. To be honest, Cashman was cool. He was like, hey, Bushy, we're going to uh, we're gonna get you somewhere to play. Just be patient. Just trying to get the right deal. And if they get the right deal, it'd be great. If not, if you hang around another year, it won't be a bad thing. So I was concerned that my career could end very quickly if I stayed around in that role. Homer, I have to ask you before we move on with the baseball and the 98 team and Joe Torre, I have to go back to Nelly for a second because this podcast is called the Pinstripe Pod. And we, we ask him to tell a story about his former days with the Yankees. And every time he tells a story, it involves poop. And, and you didn't hear that. It, you didn't hear that wrong. It's poop. So he was in the dugout. He would have no clue. I mean, so, he, so you have no clue about we, what we, went we on. Banned, we banned any position players and starters <laughs> starting pitching in that bullpen. There was, so, they weren't allowed. So, so Homer has no idea about what went on. In I the don't bullpen. know. Maybe who knows? No, I have no clue. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I was not only on the team, but I was scared when I was on the team. So I went from the dugout to the field, from the field to the dugout, back to the clubhouse. That, that was my extent of, you know, seeing the venue of Yankee Stadium in, in 98. So I didn't uh, ask about anything. I mean, I was literally like zoned in. All right. Since you don't know anything about poop, let me let me ask. <laughs> let me ask. Let me ask about your Yankee experience then. Because I heard you say, uh, besides just going from the field to the dugout to the clubhouse, the thing that I picked up on there, Homer, was the fact that you never thought you were going to crack the major league lineup. So when you did and when you came up and when you did well, what was that like wearing pinstripes? It, was it like an out-of-body experience? Like so many great players have worn that uniform before you, after you, and, and you are now one of these players. What was that feeling like when you did get to play and you did have that run? I have to say this first. I was, uh, you know, I was born and raised in East St. Louis. So now I was, man, I, was, I, had some, I had some fire in me. So I felt like I belonged. And then, you know, I grew up, I grew up a Cardinals fan. So in the 80s, the Cardinals kind of ran baseball a little bit, you know. I was diehard Cardinals fan. But then as I learned more and more about the Yankee history and then getting an opportunity to play in, in the Bronx where it was just like, man, it was pandemonium, right? It was just like crazy every, almost every night. We were winning every night. So then, as you can imagine, it started like getting into me and I started getting into it. And it was like, oh, man, this is crazy. Like, this, I think this is going to be the gift that keeps on giving for a very long time if we could uh, bring the championship home. And we did. I try to explain it to my son and, and other people when, I, when I'm talking about it. But you can't truly understand what it's like to be a Yankee player on the field until you do it. Because, you know, I know some other teams have very solid fan bases like the Cardinals. Philly, but I mean, to be a member of the Yankee family is just crazy. What about uh, Joe Torre? You know, I, play, I played for Lou Pinella, and, and Lou Pinella was all about New York. I mean, he was, uh, he, was as, he was as intense as playing in New York City, but going over, and when I first went to New York and played in front of Joe Torre, he, you know, the, the city can kind of get away from me, and, the, and then being a Yankee and all the media can kind of get away from me, but for me, he was like very calming and, and kind of took the media away from you and let you go out and, and play and, and do your best out on the field. I and mean, what did you think when you first came over about about the skipper? You know, I always say playing for Joe is like was like it was a, a father coaching his twenty five sons, right? Like he's gonna uh 
he's not going to micromanage you. It's literally in 98, everybody was experienced. And it was like, okay, uh, you're in the multi-year contract, do your job. But then if you mess up, it was, I remember one time when he got on Bernie Williams, who was leading the league and hitting at that time. And I was like, oh, man, if he'll get on Bernie, he'll get on everybody. He'll get on anybody. So, but that definitely that calmness. And people always say, you know, I've heard people say at least that you tend to play like the person that you were coached at. And so now, uh, or you coach like the, the player that you were coached at. And so uh, Joe being one of my coaches, man, I'm very calm. I try to really know my stuff first before I get demand some other stuff with players. You know, that's something that I took away from Joe, you know, playing for Joe Torrey. He's a, uh, I would say he's a father figure like, like manager. Well, Joe was a father figure. What was, uh, I have to ask this because I, I, I'm a kid who grew up in New Jersey and I still thought of Ozzie Smith as, you know, the wizard. I mean, it didn't matter. I, I was in New Jersey and he played for the Cardinals in St. Louis. So growing up in East St. Louis, what did Ozzie mean to you? Because he meant everything to me being an infielder in Little League and watching him play the way he played, doing his backflip when he comes onto the field. I mean, that it was just tremendous. And watching him on a baseball bunch, what did Ozzie Smith mean for you, Homer? Well, he was definitely my childhood idol. I grew up playing shortstop, growing on the run. Now, I'll, I'll admit this. I was too heavy to do a backflip, but I enjoyed it. You know? Same, <laughs> I wasn't gonna same. Do backflip. I'll spot you in fantasy camp. We'll try it. <laughs> but no, for real. I mean, uh, his ability to play defense, you know, was unmatched. But I tell you what, remember the home, big home run he hit in the postseason? Oh, of course. I mean, yeah, so to watch him contribute offensively as a player, along with the defense, now that was special because I was always considered an offensive guy first and I could play a little bit of defense. So, I mean, Ozzy was, to me, he was my childhood. And I tell you what, I got an opportunity to meet him one time. So through, through the media, he got word that he was my favorite player and, you know, he knew everything. He knew about my situation with the Yankees. So we're in uh, the World Series. Shane Spencer in batting practice hit a line drive that almost hit me. I put my hand up, and they thought they broke my uh, broke my hand. And uh, they were rushing me into the tunnel to go to the hospital to get x-rays. I hear this voice, hey, Homer, let me see your glove. I turn around. It's Ozzy Smith. As I'm running to the clubhouse uh, or dugout, I just chuck my glove at my all-time favorite player. <laughs> So, so as you can imagine, I was not happy about that. <laughs> That's a great story. My goodness. Yeah. I wrote a book and uh, it's called Hitting Low in the Zone. Tell me a little bit about why you wrote it. What does it mean? Because for me, you know, I, I love throwing low in the zone because you're just going to beat the ball on the ground. But, you know, you have a different look on hitting low in the zone. Yeah, you know, so as a hitter, we're taught to look for this elevated strike zone that's just floating in midair, right? So what hitting on the zone speaks to is the the priority of where the body positioning and the vision and the swing pad should be tree pitch. Like Mike Trout, everybody knows that Mike Trout is a prolific low ball hitter. And he's a great player, don't get me wrong. But there's been all these studies that talked about uh, players are not uh, great because they're just these athletic specimens. They're literally, they do some things differently. And with Mike Trout, uh, we can easily point to he's a low ball hitter first. And the reason why I say first is because uh, if you don't get that production at the end of the year, then your offensive production would take a hit. And in most cases, like you could go into season-long slump. So basically, it's, it's about building your swing path, body positioning, and focus to hit 
below the strike zone and the bottom of the strike zone first, the middle of the strike zone second, and then try to get as, as little as possible production on the high fastball. Because think about it like this perspective. Judge, I love him, great player, he's good for the game, but his after hitting the 50 home runs, they got some data on him, and the data said you can get him out a lot below the strike zone. So he suffered there a little bit, mightily, right? But now, if you check his stats, I mean, he's he's crushing pitches down there first. So in a sense, you know, I, I get a lot of pushback from a lot of favorite nutritionists or people that study data that says you have to get production in all three areas. I get it, but it's it's the where you prioritize the production because, like Nelly was saying, that's the pitcher's safe haven and that's what a game plan for for tough you know tough times when they're when they're facing the hitter. So, uh, and, and not to mention physically, the fastball is the only pitch that can stay above that area consistently. So it, it, it's it's a uh, it's really cool, uh, uh, really cool book, and uh, I enjoy writing. Homer, let me let me ask you this because that breakdown right there that sounded like Homer Bush, the hitting instructor, uh, and Homer Bush to one day be promoted from the hitting instructor to possibly manager. So, are there any aspirations <laughs> for you to to get back into this and 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 maybe manage one day? You know, I'll tell you this, right? So, like, and, and I know there's a lot of talk about the hiring process uh, in baseball. Like, there are teams that will not even give me a sit down as a former player. They won't even take my call as a former player. But I, there are teams that who have and would say to me, Homer. I'll be honest with you. I like it. I know your data is true. There are, you get 50% of your opportunities in the lowest area of the hitting zone. They, everybody in baseball knows that for a fact. But the problem is they're thinking I'm giving them the, the problem and not the answer. They won't give me an opportunity to provide, provide them with the answer. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not ready to just give it to them for free. Like everybody <laughs> else in baseball. Like, because I know for a fact that when one day it may take 30 years from now and it may my son may be uh introducing this to get baseball but i will take it to my grave before i give it to him because i know in my heart that the people that run baseball most of them have no concept of what the bottom the middle and top of the hitting zone looks like as a player so the fact that they're trying to tell me is ridiculous. And so just from what you told me, you sounded like a professor of hitting when you were describing your book. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I tend I to believe it. what you're saying. You had my attention, Homer. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. But yeah, no, it's uh, I'll get an opportunity one day. Oh, I deal with San Diego Padres and the team I coach. Man, we led the league in home runs. We led the league in doubles. And I'll say this. Like, the fact that people are enamored with home runs is mind-boggling to me because you can take someone like Mookie Betts, who's 167, 170 pounds, and he can average 25 home runs a season. And that's because the human body doesn't determine how far the ball goes in most cases. So, well, at least to hit it to 300. 330, 350, 360 feet. The body size is irrelevant at the uh, adult age. But hey, that's conversation for another day, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Homer, Jake Brown here. I got two questions for you. First is, you put up some incredible numbers in you know part-time play in 98, and then in 99, you had a great year with 128 games. And then 2001, you had a good year part-time. You played a lot of part-time. First off, how hard was it for you staying fresh, You know, not knowing
knowing your role exactly and still being great. And then my second question is those recurring hip injuries. Did that really play a toll on you mentally? And because you cut your career short because of them. And obviously a hip is important, especially for a guy who's stealing bases. But, you know, those hip injuries don't come around. I think you could have had an even longer career than you did. No, I appreciate it. And uh, it's amazing because I was actually a starter who just couldn't get on the field for 140, 150 games. So I was fresh from the stand. Mentally, I was fresh from the standpoint of, well, I'm still the starter. I'm still the starter. I just got to get back out there, right? So it's not like I was, uh, I was basically on the DL. So that's the one thing that um, that concerned me was that when I was having all these injuries and say I was on a three-year contract, it was like, oh, man, I got I to gotta answer some numbers if I want to get another contract or at least get extended out another year. Well, that was my more my concern at that time was just uh, putting up some decent numbers. So that was tough. But um, as far as my career goes, man, I think I still played long enough for someone to say, hey, you know, he's had some injuries, but we're going to give him another year just to see if, if he could get over these this injury bug. But it was it happened at the same time that Moneyball came through and my value was getting too high because you know Moneyball mainly was about being able to pay a guy one dollar who took a walk compared to a guy like myself. They'd have to pay me two dollars because I would get my on base percentage by hit. So they were like, hey, on-base percentage is all we're looking for, and we can get it cheaper. And so Moneyball blew through at a time when I really needed for it to hold off for like another five years so that I can prolong my career. So that's one of the reasons why I really got into Moneyball, because I didn't want data to hurt my son or younger players that I knew if I could step in and step out. Homer, just one more for me, and that is the 100th uh, anniversary of the Negro Leagues, just what that means to you and uh, the significance. Of, of this anniversary for you? I'm a, a huge believer in, like, you don't know where you're going until you know you where you've been. For so many people at a time where they were passionate about something and they enjoyed playing something that I get to enjoy for free or little effort, I mean, I'm, I can't be thankful enough at the end of the day. But what I can say, I do understand, like, history of that past in, in general. So I can only imagine what they went through on top of that. So the, my, you know, I'm extremely grateful. I know I wouldn't be in the situation that I'm in and the situation I'm trying to uh, allow my son to continue forward in. Like there's a, uh, just a, a blessing all around. And I think it really, it really speaks to just how grateful I am and have been uh, when, it can, when it comes to the game of baseball and how I try to share it. I don't share it as if like, you know, I was the best or, you know, I'm, I was great or, you know, I know so much because I know so many people have uh, put me in this position to do things so it can continue on. Homer, thank you so much. We appreciate it uh, for the time. Uh, another one of Nelly's teammates from the 1998 World Series champion Yankees, Homer Bush. We appreciate it. He could follow him on Twitter at Bush Homer. And don't forget, go to Amazon, check out his book, Hitting Low in the Zone, A New Baseball Paradigm. You can get it in paperback right now. So, Homer, thank you so much. We appreciate for dropping the knowledge. Even though you held back on some of your hitting knowledge, we appreciate all the time. <laughs> all right. Hey, let's talk about it. Thanks, Homer. You are the greatest, man. You're the greatest. Thanks, Nelly. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> That's a wrap for episode 19. That could be the Masahiro Tanaka, Aaron Boone, or Luis Soho episode of the Pinstripe Pod. Take your pick. Our New York Yankees podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake Brown, as always, for producing the show. Tremendous job out of him. Make sure to subscribe to the Pinstripe Pod 
wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're using Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and please write a nice positive review if you please. We appreciate your support as always. For Jeff Nelson, I'm Chris Sheeran. We'll be back on Thursday this week as we preview part one of the Subway series. Talk to you then, everybody. And remember, stay safe.